This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor. Are critics necessary? A good many people ask, not a few of them the butts of some kind of criticism. Certainly, if dray horses, victims of the whip, could speak, the answer would be no. But playwrights, directors, and actors of stature would surely answer yes. So begins Critics and Criticism, the essay in the November 2018 issue of The New Criterion, by John Simon, the legendary critic who joins us today. John, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. John, you have been writing for The New Criterion since 1989. Critics and Criticism is your 74th essay for the magazine. And to answer, in part, why critics are necessary, you've offered to begin by reading a selection from your latest essay. The good critic notes details that might escape a lay viewer, in addition to pinpointing implications and providing explications for what is not immediately apparent. He or she shows how a work fits into the history of its art form and how it reflects and comments on its social context. If it is of performing art, he or she evaluates writers, directors, and actors. In theater, there is also set, costume, and lighting design. In musicals, choreography, singing, and dancing, both as concept and execution for the critic to address. But there is something else too, and it is supreme. We also read the critic for the writing, as we read for the writing practitioners of other art forms, fiction, poetry, essays, drama. This is scarcely less important than the critic's yea or nay. Kenneth Tynan, with his wit and elegance, his way with words and paragraphs, is vastly preferable to most of his more plodding colleagues. However dedicated, and if you will, empathetic, they may be. The critic is a man who knows the way, but cannot drive the car. Tynan has said, as oversimplifications go, not a bad epigram. Among the many writings about criticism, let me direct you to one essay, Oscar Wilde's The Critic as Artist, exaggerated but witty and brilliant. If the critic goes beyond information and adjudication, if he or she can add wit to the review or critique, the resultant effect is at least doubled. Even intelligent digression can prove in indirectly pertinent. The focus might well be narrow, but the relevance and the resonance should be extensive. You might do worse than study The Great Critics, an anthology of literary criticism, compiled and edited by James Harry Smith and Ed Winfield Parks. Criticism should also be comprehensible, which is to say not written by Frenchmen with esoteric theories and befuddling jargon and it should not present itself as written on mosaic tablets by the likes of Harold Bloom. Above all, it should not be the voice of a publisher or editor or anybody else 
but independently the critic's own. John, how did you become a critic? I don't know. I think it's a disposition that's born into you. You don't choose to be a critic as you emerge into the world from your mother, from your mother's inside. But eventually something in you steers you in that direction. I don't know, you might ask, how do you become a painter or a poet? There is no answer to that that holds true for everyone. We find our way to whatever it is. John, I'm going to play an interview that you did with Mike Wallace in 1978, and I think it illustrates a little more of your point of view on what it means to be a critic. Here we go. But speaking more seriously, um, there is a violence in me which is directed against what I consider ugly or stupid or a lie. And this sometimes takes a very sardonic, a very aggressive, a very uh, spectacular form of expressing itself, which I think is all right, because we live in an age when people are not very sensitive. Otherwise, those of you, as we were talking about, couldn't stand for the, for the junk they have to see all the time. But insensitivity is the sort of the coloring of the age. And the only way you can pierce all that protective or, or maybe non-protective coloring uh, is by calling people's attention to the fact that a different opinion exists. And you can't do that by whispering. You can't do that by, by a polite little uh, rap on the knuckles. You have to make yourself felt. So you're taking your readership by the lapel, so to speak, sure. and shaking them yes. awake. Yes, yes. And of course, there are sensitive souls left, thank God, and Andrew Sinclair may be one of them, to whom this is uh, excessive and incomprehensible. I have to say, John, that's so well said, and what must be true in 1978, 40 years later, is even more true in 2018. You have served as the drama critic for New York Magazine, film critic for National Review, cultural critic for The New Leader, among many other posts. And over the decades, your criticism has taken some criticism of its own. I wonder if you would detail for us, once and for all, one story that has long circulated, and this is of the actress who quite dramatically interrupted your dinner at a restaurant? Yes. It was some kind of a New York Film Festival party at uh, a nearby restaurant. And uh, as I came in, I was confronted by the notorious Sylvia Miles, whom I had described as, whose who's acting I had described as gate-pushing. And uh, she didn't care for that, needless to say. And she threw a plate of something at me as I came in. It turned out to be uh, a raw steak, steak d'artar, but it's been called everything else since. You could feed the orphans of... Asia on all the things it's been called by way of what it was. But it was tartar. What was she expecting to get out of that? Well, the satisfaction of vengeance for having written an unfavorable review of her. And since it was, I was wearing a very expensive jacket that I had, blazer type of jacket that I had bought 
on Rodeo Drive in, in Los Angeles. And there it was all over this expensive garment. So I said she would have to pay for the, uh, for the cleaning bill, to which she had some kind of a saucy report, response, uh, like, that'll be something new for you to be clean. I don't know. Did you ever get the check? Uh, no, of course not. No. John, you have come to personify for many the tough-minded New York critic. You may also be our only writer at the New Criterion to have appeared in a cameo role on Saturday Night Live. I'm going to play that clip now. And it begins with someone tossing a glass of wine in, into someone's face. Here we go. Here it is. The honesty, the despair. Never before have the torments of movie critics been so vividly portrayed. Most of us critics go into it for the wrong reasons. We so desperately want to be a part of show business, and yet we have no talent. So out of sheer envy, we criticize the honest work of real artists, secretly wishing all the time we were writing the scripts, or directing, or acting. That was very well done, John. Who was that who's face was attacked do you know john lovitz he oh, was, was that no that didn't look like i think that. it was a young john lovitz maybe i did something with him but i didn't think that was it now what you say in that clip of course is a riff on a common critique of critics and criticism is there anything to it critics are just failed artists no of course not um there are many ways of becoming a critic. Some is by becoming indignant about the state of the culture. Another one is by being an essayist and looking for subjects. And finally, you hit on criticism as a renewing, self-renewing subject for essays. Uh, it could be out of some kind of misanthropy, which I hope is not my case. Uh, and it could be, I don't know, because you're encouraged to do so by someone you respect and who thinks that you'd be good at it, and so you plunge in. And were you encouraged by somebody? Not directly, but I was friends with Dwight MacDonald, mm -hmm. and he was a good example of what I, what I was trying to do. Plus, he was my friend. He wrote the introduction to my first book, which was a funny kind of introduction. Uh, and, um, yeah, I think he was an influence in that direction. But I wasn't a disciple in the sense of espousing his views uh, slavishly or even unslavishly. Well, I'd like to bring up another well-known episode, one you've revisited recently, your famous takedown of the Star Wars franchise. <laughs> Now, this is what you wrote in New York Magazine in 1977 when the first film was released. And I wonder if you would read this short passage for us from that review. Okay. Oh, dull new world. We are treated to a galactic civil war, assorted heroes and villains, a princely maiden in distress, a splendid old man surviving from an extinct 
extinct order of knights who possessed a mysterious power called the Force, and it is as exciting as last year's weather reports. Still, Star Wars will do very nicely for those lucky enough to be children or unlucky enough never to have grown up. The thing that is most often quoted in connection with Star Wars, which I think is worth quoting, I refer to it as a shaggy god story. But you often lament the comic book obsession of popular culture. And despite their commercial success, through the subsequent films, you elaborated on this initial criticism. And finally, here's another clip, this one from your appearance on Nightline in the summer of 1983. And we begin with Ted Koppel. Hi, from our New York studios, this is John Simon, film critic for the National Review and drama critic for New York Magazine. From our Chicago bureau, Gene Siskel, film critic for the Chicago Tribune and co-host of the syndicated television series At The Movies. And Roger Ebert, co-host of At The Movies and film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. Mr. Simon, you described The Empire Strikes Back, the second in this trilogy, as malodorous awful, and I understand you're also well able to keep your enthusiasm in check for the third in the trilogy. Why so unkind? Well, I think... Uh the uh, raves for the early Star Wars have been so violent and so uh, extravagant that I feel one cannot afford to mince one's words if one dislikes these things. You one certainly has... did not do that. Uh, but, but why do you feel they are so bad? I feel they're so bad because they're completely dehumanizing. I th obviously, let's face it, they are for children or for childish adults. They're not for adult mentalities, uh, which unfortunately... Uh, means that they're not for a lot of my fellow critics who also lack adult mentalities. But anyway, um, they are for children, and they're brutalizing children, they're stultifying children, they're making children uh, dumber than they need to be. Uh, a great work for children, like Huck Finn, for example, tells a child something about reality, about people, about life, about growing up. These films try to keep children stupid children forever. And that, I think, is wrong. The critics of The Critic might say, lighten up. In fact, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who appeared with you on that Nightline segment, suggested that you are old at heart. Are they right? Is it wrong to object to such popular entertainment? Well, they will always be around. Uh, and for those whose mentality is on a parallel plane with them, they're a good thing and should remain. But for those who want to rise above this plane, and who do anyway, uh, no matter what, that, that seems like a rather low-level operation, and one that might just as well be avoided and not replicated, and not the source of some new development which really ought to differ rather than resemble. Now, over the decades that you have been an active critic, has the audience for art and culture changed? I don't think so. I don't try to keep very close contact with that. I have better things to do with my time. But as far as I can tell, our comic strips will always be comic strips. And uh, 
immature entertainment will always remain immature entertainment. And it's not a great deal. It's not like uh, the plague. And how about Broadway? Has Broadway changed? Oh, yes, perhaps in the sense that musicals were always in a certain preponderance because that's what the American public likes most. Uh, But they've become even more important recently. But the big difference is that the older musicals were not afraid of tunefulness, were not afraid of hummable melodies, and above all were able to create such melodies. The new musicals have poor music, not really singable music, uh, not really memorable music, not really tuneful music. I don't know whether it's because most tunes have been exhausted and there's nothing left, or whether it is simply because some kind of impotence that uh, um, sits in the minds and hearts of the people producing these tuneless musicals. You know, I was thinking about the movies. The movies were once so central to American culture, and now they seem quite peripheral. We don't all go see the same movies. I never go to the movies anymore. Uh, what happened to the movies? Well, I agree with you. Um, although my, my situation is somewhat different in that I used to be a film critic, and as such, I could see movies for free. Then I ceased being a film critic and remained a literature and theater critic, and occasionally art or musical music critic. But I was no longer a film critic and no longer had free access to movies. And since most of them were rather bad, I resented having to pay for them. And then the easiest thing to do was to forget about them altogether. And every once in a while, when, when something is highly praised, either in print or in voice by friends, or if something is that enthusiastically received, then I usually make an effort to see it. It seems that movies, which are now geared to such a broad audience, in in fact, appeal to very few people. You know, I think they've been dumbed down so much, uh, yet people are going to the movies less and less. That may be so, but apparently it's still possible to thrive by making unpopular movies. (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring critics who might be listening to this? Uh, I mainly give them a piece of advice which may not be helpful, or maybe it will, is to trust themselves, uh, to... uh, to review in the way that they really feel and really think, not the way the audience, the readers, the editors, the public might think, but they themselves, what their true feelings, true opinions are, that is what you heed and that is what you put on paper or, or, on, or on the internet. Bravo. You've been listening to The New Criterion, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and newcriterion.com. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. My guest today has been John Simon. John's writings have been collected most recently in John Simon on Theater, John Simon on Film, and John Simon on Music, all published by Applause. In addition to contributing to The New Criterion and other venues, he maintains the blog Uncensored John Simon and appears on RNN's Corner Table, 
His latest essay for us, Critics and Criticism, appears in the November 2018 edition of The New Criterion. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you.